0: Lord, we just come before you as we get ready to open up the word, and we ask you to just help Matt and Lori and all the other individuals that are having health issues and everything for whatever reasons. we ask that you reach out to them and touch them and and help their health, and just bless this time as we open your word, and we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I printed out a couple of these uh, intros to Hebrew poetry and the breakdown of the, of the Psalms. Uh, we're getting ready to start into the fourth book of the Psalms, which we told you at the beginning that Psalms is broken down into five separate books. And we're now getting ready to go into book four. And it's most of the uh, next uh, 16 Psalms are about our earthly pilgrimage. So if you've lost one or, or never had one, you can take one. Just help you with the poetry as we look at it. So, all right, Psalm 90. Thank you. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you, were, you have formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men to destruction. You say, return you, children of men. For a thousand years in your cider, but as yesterday when it is past, passed, and as a watch in the night, you carry them away as with the flood. You, you are as a, as a sleep in the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up, in the evening it is cut down and withers. For we are consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are troubled. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your countenance. For all our days are passed away in your wrath. We spend our years as the tale that is, that is told. The days of our years are, are three score and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? Even according to your fear, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and let it repent you concerning your servants. O, satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein you have afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let your work appear unto your servants and your glory unto your children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us, yea, the work of your of our hands establish you it. So this is a psalm of Moses. This is the one psalm that he wrote in the book of Psalms. And so this places it at a fairly early psalm as far as the rest, rest of them. So this is Moses' prayer and it says the man of God. 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And we, this is that same topic that we have been talking about over and over and over again. God is our refuge. And here it even more, is more broad. He's our very dwelling place. We are to dwell in God. And I just, as we bring, come through Psalms, it's just something that I keep wanting to bring out. He is our defense. He is our dwelling place. He is where we are expected to to hide in, and too many times people think, you know, well, I don't need God, this is just a little problem, or I can handle this, or I can do this on my own over and over and over again. God says, I am your, in this case, dwelling place, your habitation, your home for all generations. So, He's basically saying, just stay inside Him. Don't get to the place where you think you can get along without him and and jump out. So he doesn't care that you ask him all different—I mean, little things all the time. It's what he wants. He wants our full attention. He wants our full request He's not looking to have us wait for the big problems. And this is too many times we as humans go, God, I don't want to bother you with the little things. I'll just bother you with the big problems. And this is why I've said over and over, what problem of ours to God is going to be considered big? He created the world and the whole universe. Nothing in our life is going to seem like a big issue to him. Now, he's going to treat it respectfully. He's going to deal with it, just like we would with our children. When our children came with us with some, some need in their life, we didn't go to them and say, well, that's just too little. Go take care of it yourself. Now, we might train them to be able to handle it, on their own but you know we didn't push them away and say go away yeah you know, this is just too small I, you know, it's too small a problem for me to help help you with if we're smart parents and loving parents we helped our kids with their issues and this is the way God is he's no less loving to us we go to him and say God I need help I just can't handle this and he's not gonna he's not gonna turn us away he wants us to come to him he wants us to hide in him. He wants us to stay in him. Not say, well, God, I'll just wait. You know, I'll come to you when I have a big problem. But usually happens to little problems that don't get solved. They become bigger problems. And usually they're easier to solve. They were easier to solve when they were small than they are as they've spiraled out of, out of control. And God is saying, just come to me. Come to me. I love you. I care for you. I'm your shepherd. What does the shepherd do with the sheep? Guards them at every moment, even when the sheep is being too stupid to know it's in trouble, as it walks straight into the, into the path of the, the lion or the bear, and, and God's saying, no, no, don't go that way. You're, you know, I know you think you can handle this problem, but I don't want you to go that way. Uh, as you're walking toward the cliff to go over the cliff, it's, it's let me help you come this way. Don't go over the cliff. God is there always watching us. Um, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or even or ever you form the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so here's, here's Moses saying, before the earth the mountains were, and it says brought forth in the King James, it literally means born. Before the mountains were even born. And we think back to the Genesis account. And Jesus says, let there be land. Let the waters gather forth and let the land, the mountains, be born as it pushes up through the water. And Moses is saying, even before that, even before that, you were there, God. Before you formed the very earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, for all of time, God, you were God. This is that powerful picture. God pre-exists what we call time, okay? This is what Moses is saying. God, before anything, you were there. Before before the mountains, before the land, before, you know, from the very beginning to the very end, you are God. Then I always thought, what did he do beforehand? Well, who knows what he did beforehand. I have this picture that God has done many things over, over time. I believe that the angels and, uh, had some form of, of life and existence, and then they had their choice to fall and, and, or not fall, and Satan, and Satan took a third of the angels, and they made their decision, and God said, okay, that, that, that part of the universe is done. Now we're going to go start the next part of the universe. Is it possible that there are multiple universes out there and God's dealing with different universes? Yes, it's possible. It's because physics, are saying, physics says that there's other universes pushing against our universe. or well, we're pushing against them however you want to look at it. So there's other universes out there. That, but you know what? God is still, if there are other universes out there, he's God of those universes as well. So God could be just having a whole whole bunch of fun out there. He could have multiple universes saying, I'm kinda of bored with one, let me go start three or four others and deal with three or four universes. I had never thought of it that way, but that sounds so God, I, I always imagined God creating things. I know. Like this is just our one little universe. You know. He probably has dozens Creating multiple universes for every day the week. But this is the point. And when I started reading on physics about multiple universes, I'm going, boy, our God's big. Not only our universe, but He's got other universes. Possibly has other universes out there, and He's still the God of those universes. And well, how are they different? What what is He doing in those universes? They'd be totally different. Yeah, He could have a universe out there that never fell into sin. Yeah, that has a whole perfect perfect environment still. Who knows what He's got out there? He's just out there creating universes. And so Moses is here saying, you know, God, you encompass everything there is, all of time. And this is the other thing. The whole idea of time. Do you realize that time was created for man? The time we have on this world is created for man. And we're going to get down into this a little later as we get into the, into this, how God sees our time compared to the way we see time. It says, verse 3, For you turn return man to destruction and, and say return you children of men and this idea of destruction is dust God you return men to dust and you say return you children of men of Adam is what it literally says so God says you're going to return back to the dust you came from and Moses understood that We're, we have a life we get done with our life and we return back to dust. From dust we came, from dust you will return, according to God when he judges judged man. And but again, this whole psalm is about the brevity of life, how short life is when compared to God and eternity. And this is something he's saying. God says, you know, man, you're going to return to dust. Verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight is but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night... This whole idea, Moses is saying, God, a thousand years is just like it was yesterday. And if that wasn't enough, he goes, a watch in the night, four hours, is also like a thousand years to God. He's really just showing how God looks at it and says, this is a very short time. Our time was made for us as humans. What is it to God? Just a blink of the eye. Our entire, the entire length that the Earth's going to exist in God's mind and from His perspective in eternity, might be just a couple seconds. You now, I was talking with a friend of mine one time, and we were talking about, is it possible that everybody who dies on Earth ends their seven at about the same moment, because of the difference of our time frames? So everybody who's ever, we've always talked about, you know, so-and-so will be there to meet us when we when we die. Well, maybe from God's perspective, they've only been there for a couple of seconds by the time we, we get there. That Adam and Eve just died by heaven's time frame is a second or two ago, and by the time we get to the end of this, it's only going to be a minute and a half or something. Yeah. And everybody all ends up in heaven at about the same time. Yeah. This is kind of a bizarre thought, but it is a very distinct possibility because of the difference in the way the time runs we know that there's time in heaven because we're told that the tree of life in heaven and the new heaven and earth will give forth different fruits each month so we know there's some form of time because usually we've always heard that well there's no time in heaven time ceases ceases to exist well the time that we know here on earth will cease but there's all kinds of pictures in the scriptures of time in heaven now, whether it's the same time frame or totally different time frame, it doesn't really clear, clarify, but there's some form of time. Will it be the fourth dimension that we're used to, where you go back and forth, or will it be an eighth or ninth dimension? You know, who knows? Because it's a different, it's totally different. We don't know. And it's just speculation. Yeah. But it is a thought that we might all end up in heaven, as far as God's concerned, at the same moment, you know, pretty much the same moment from heaven's perspective. And yet it was 7,000 years of time on this earth. And so it all it took, and maybe it cycle. takes seven minutes up there. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, so we're all popping into heaven, you know, all about the same time. And they may just be getting there when we get, I mean, I'm, we're throwing this out, you know, there's no maybe. proof on any of this, but things, maybe. the key to this is, with a totally different time running in heaven, we don't know exactly what's happening there. Or when, or how we're going to be spread out, or how we might all be there approximately the same time. Maybe it's a half hour, you know, uh, but we don't know. And this is the key to this. And we want to be careful when we say things so dogmatically that we say, well, uh, we get to heaven and there's just no time. Well, the Bible seems to indicate there's some form of time, so we want to be careful. They were very smart and probably smarter than we were in many cases. Because remember we've said this over and over there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that's happened in the in the past is going to happen again in the in the future or in the now. It's just the way it is. Everything that's happening now if God tarries long enough will cease to happen and happen again. It's just the way of life. And we we've covered this, you know, and this is one thing that Sharon's commented a couple of times, you know, well, they were just as bad as we were, you know, when we started talking about the different sins and everything they commit. And so, all of this, but time is one of those things that we need to be aware. We don't really understand it even. But from God's perspective, nothing on this world lasts long. And this is something for us to understand. When He looks at us and we think that, man, we're getting really, we're getting up there, we're 80 years old. And God says, hey, a, a thousand years is just like four hours. I can, you know, what is your concern about that? You know, and, but I wanted to bring this out. He's giving two different stories about a thousand years. He says one is just like it was yesterday, and the other was like it was four hours ago. But he's, his point of this is how short it is in God's sight. And I think both of those examples are probably long for God. God is eternal. He has always existed. What is even 7,000 years of Earth's time to somebody who's, listed, who's existed forever? And this is something we all, we all experience it ourselves. You know, think back when you were a kid. Christmas seemed to take forever to get there. Why? Well, because when you're six years old, you know, a year is one-sixth of, your, one-sixth of your life. That was a long period of time. When you get to be 100, it's you know it's it's one, one of your life, and time just seems to accelerate so fast because it's so insignificant compared to the rest of your time. It's just one year. You know, he say, he's talking about thousand year, you know, are a thousand year, and we and we're thinking, you know, boy, I've lived, yeah. I've lived to be 100, 120, and you know, we think we've lived a long time, and God said, ah, you're you're still a kid. <laughs> you're still a kid. What's what's wrong with you? So, but this brevity, and I I believe that this is probably something that Moses is coming on, you know, later in his life, you know, how short life is and how things seem to go so fast. Verse 5, you carry them away as a flood. They are asleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. So this is, you know, he carries you as way in the flood. You're you're indolated by a flood. He sends a flood your way and how fast fast things happen. Have you ever seen some of the older uh, pictures? I've seen an older picture of a dam that broke and how the flood comes running down the hill and that they didn't have time to even make any plans. It was, they were, the dam was safe, the dam was broken, and and the city was underwater, and the town was underwater. How fast that kind of stuff happens. And then he says, as sleep in the morning, when you wake up, it takes a little while for you, you you cross that transition from being asleep to waking up. Most people just don't have their eyes open up, jump out of bed and start running. There's usually that uh, really saying, as sleep that leaves, and you have that moment of in between and then you're back, but it's still, when sleep leaves you, it's still fairly quick usually if you've had a good night's sleep. Yeah. If you haven't had a good night's sleep, you never feel like waking up, but when you've had a good night's sleep, it is easier to get up in the morning and just sit up and say okay i'm ready for i'm ready for this day and as and there's grass which grows up this one is for us in the desert something that is something we really understand we can have nothing growing out there or just dead weeds it looks like and it rains mm. and all of a sudden there is grass green grass all over the place and flowers and sometimes flowers that, that, that just pop up within the, within that same day And then by the end of the day, if if there's not a cool rain to keep them there, they will be withered, wilted, and gone. This is that picture. Moses is somebody who lives in a desert. He knows that same mentality where the grass pops up and withers away by the end of the day. And so here he's saying that it, and in the morning, it flourishes, it blossoms, as, as Loretta said, it gets its flowers and all of that. And it grows up, and in the evening, it is cut down and withers. And this is something we're used to. Now, people from the East Coast or places where it's green and all the time, they they don't really catch the meaning of this verse as much. You know, yeah, your grass might wither a little bit during the daytime, but here in the desert, we know exactly what he's saying. Grass pops up, and it gets a little bit of moisture, it blossoms, it, it looks pretty. And usually, oftentimes, within 24 hours, no more than a day or two, It's done come and it's gone. It turns all pretty green with all the different color flowers, and the next thing you know, you're back to the gray, brown desert. Verse 7, for we are consumed by your wrath by your anger, and by your wrath we are troubled or disturbed. So Moses is rest you know this is probably while he's leading the, the children of Israel and they're griping and complaining all the time and he's remembering the various times when when God has said judgment. We think about Korah and his, and his people standing up to challenge him and, and Moses saying God do you, you show us who's your leader and God opens the ground and swallows Korah and his family up we think about Miriam and, and Aaron you know, can, you th- can you really think about what that would have been like your brother and sister challenging you for authority out of the blue that had to have been something that was hard on Moses. You know, Aaron, I, Aaron, God's promoted you to be priest, and now you want my position as well. Yeah. So, and then, if you remember from that one, Miriam was struck with leprosy, and Moses immediately hit his knees and said, God, forgive her, and, and then she was had to suffer for a while, and then she was cleansed of her, of her leprosy. But how many times did Moses go through this yeah. Standing out, you know, he led them out of Egypt, he's standing out at the Red Sea, and they're going, oh, you just brought us out here so that we could die, because there wasn't enough graves in Egypt. And Moses is going, oh, come on, people, God delivered us. It wasn't me who brought you out here. And he says, we're consumed, your anger. How many times did we read about Moses saying to Moses, I'm just going to destroy them all and start all over again? And Moses saying, nope, because if people hear that you brought them out and destroyed them, you're... Reputation God will be destroyed because they'll say you couldn't deliver your own people Moses knew how to talk to God and he did it several times, but he understood this That God is a consuming God his anger will will come down upon the people When they were camping at the base of Mount Sinai and when Moses was getting ready to go up They put a fence around the mountain because God said if anybody touches his holy mountain Including the animals they would be struck dead His holiness demanded that perfection, and he's looking here and saying, we are consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are disturbed. Because he'd seen it over and over and over again. And we would also see it in our own lives to some degree. When we are disobedient to God and we reap what we sow, usually we blame God. God, why are you letting this happen? And if you could just hear God saying, well, why did you disobey and have this implant the seeds? Most of or much of what we went through, go through each time is because of the sin that we do, the disobedience that we do, and how easy it is to be disobedient to God. And we justify it. You bet. We'll justify all these things that we do wrong. Well, God, if you just understood the circumstances that, that led to this, you'd understand why I made this and what we'll say mistake. We won't even call it a sin. We won't even call it a sin. We'll just say, you know, God, if you just You know, if you just understood, this is how I got to this. This is the path that I took. If you just really understood, God, then God's saying, I do understand. But I also know that you've committed a sin. You've planted the seeds. You're going to reap the 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 reward for it. And then on top of that, as Christians, as we talked about two weeks ago, God just lets us keep getting into all kinds of things that will test our faith. Do you really believe what I've taught you? Do you really believe that I'm your shelter? Are you going to stay hiding in me? Are you going to stay living in, my, in me as your protection? Or are you going to think that you can handle these little problems and go trotting out in the middle of battle without your battle armor on and without your fortress and say, Satan, I'm ready to stand up against whatever you can throw my way. Mm-hmm. And Satan looks at you and says, boy, this guy, this person is totally insane. They're out here without, without their armor, without God, thinking they can take me. And you get beat up and you get bloodied and you go crawling back to God and saying, please forgive me, I didn't mean to go out there and and be a fool. And God is saying, just stay hidden. Stay in me. Listen to me. Follow what I do. And I can tell you one thing for sure. Some of the silliest things that I've done are things that I know that God has asked me to do. And I'm going, God, it makes no sense. And God says, just do it. Just do it. This is something that we have all the time, is because we don't know everything, things don't seem to make sense. Oftentimes in the business world, in the restaurants, I would be doing things that were preparing them for the next special, and I could tell people going, well, it doesn't make sense. Why are we doing it this way? Well, then we introduce the new special, and they go, oh, this is what we're doing it this way for. It makes sense now. Well, yeah, well, if you understood everything about this like I did in the, before that, you would know why we're doing it. The, the whole idea of training for, for rescue workers who are going to go in and put their life at risk, they keep practicing something and practicing something and sometimes it doesn't make any sense until they need it. And they're just taught, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. And you get to the place where it just becomes habit and you do it and one day it saves your life. And you just, and then you go, oh, that's why we were doing this. It was very important. And sometimes just listening to God is just that same way. We listen to him, and we just follow in obedience and watch what he does and say, oh, okay, this is how. Well, that's why you wanted me to do this, God. And I shared with you when I was when God said move to Kingman, I'm, I was trying to talk to God. I was a computer programmer at the time, saying God, Kingman is not the place for a computer programmer to go. They don't have computers in Kingman. Well, I you know we had computers, but no computer jobs. You know, and it's like, why do you want me to go to Kingman, God? And yet I'm finding out that it was one of the best decisions I ever made, and you know, it was by listening to God. And we want to be aware when God tells us something. We need to not argue with him and just obey and go do. You know, Annie was sharing about a, a pastor who retired, and God called him to go, you know, led him to go as a missionary to, to Africa where he died. He <laughs> didn't even get to be a missionary. He died going there. And other people took his place. It made no sense for what happened until God put it on hearts of other people to go take his place. So we never know what God has in store, why he's telling us to do what he's doing. The one thing we do know is that God is in control. And he's also said that precious in his sight is the death of his saints. The thing we look as one of the terrible things happening in this world, for us as his saints, is the greatest thing in the world because we get to go to heaven and be with him. It ends our physical life and starts our real life. And we've got to get to this understanding This world is not our life. This world is just a training ground. It's a practice to listen for God. And when we leave this, we get to go to our real life. Our real life in heaven, where everything is going to be perfect and beyond perfect. Whatever we think perfect is, is going to be beyond that. This is the great thing about God. Whatever we think we know about God, multiply it. However big you think God is, multiply it. However strong you think God is, multiply it, okay? Whatever we think about God, we're thinking too small, always, no matter what it is. Whatever we think about what heaven's going to be like, just multiply it, uh, blow, blow it, blow it through the up to an infinity amount, and you're still not even going to be close to what it's like. All we know is a world of evil. So for us, a world without evil is going to be amazing. amazing. A world where nothing decays. You can, you can buy, your, buy your watermelon and grapes and oranges and not worry about them decaying because they're not going to. Verse 8. You, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. God sees everything we do. All of the bad we do are right before God's face. What we think is secret sins, concealed sins, God's looking at with his full vision. This type of verse should really scare us because it, really it shows makes you think us. Again, I know that I'm doing right. I don't do it. Right. think it. Because he knows what I'm thinking, yeah. I wish I would have thought of that years ago. I'm being I, before I even read it. Last year, we had some guys from CEF come up, and their definition from CEF of sin for kids anything we think, say, or do that doesn't please God is sin. When we really think about that, anything that I think that doesn't please God is a sin. Everything I say that doesn't please God is a sin. And then the part that we normally can think of, everything that I do that doesn't please God is sin. And whatever is not of faith is not pleasing God and is sin. Do you realize that you can be doing some things that we might even think are good things that God is saying you're sinning because it's not by faith, it's by the flesh? None of the works of the flesh are going to stand before God, even though they might be quote-unquote good things the people that Jesus turned to at the, at the end time and says depart from me i never knew you and they had done all these good things they had visited the homeless they had, they had fed the 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 hungry they had helped the widows they they had done all these good things and god says i never knew you it's all in your flesh it, it was all not, not by faith it is it's it's, it's work it's your own filthy rags and works it's sin I think the only way you'll be good is if you're sleeping all the time or you're in the your coma and you can't wake up, so you can't do anything. But well, the other way is to be the saint that God calls us to be. He lives in us, and we are his saints, and as he changes who we are and we do things in his power, in his strength that he leads us to do, we're doing good. But it's him that does the works. And this is the, the most critical thing. Nothing I do in my flesh stands before God. It's worthless. Even if it's good by our standards. Okay? It's not sin. It wasn't out to hurt somebody. But because I did it with all the motivations that I have behind me to get rewarded, get the, get the pat on the back, or make myself look good to others, it had the wrong motivation and it's sin. When it's God who's doing it, it's just reaching out to somebody and saying, I want to show you God's love. I just want you to be touched. And then it becomes God working for us, and he's the only one good. Because remember when Jesus was asked, good teacher, and what was his answer? Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. He under—he was teaching a lesson there that, and basically he was teaching it to this scribe Pharisee who thought he was good. You know, he thought he was being, you know, Placating Jesus by saying good teacher you know because you know, he's going I'm good and I'm just going to make it sound like here I'm mm-hmm. humble enough to make you better than me and Jesus answered to him are you calling me God because God's the only one good which he was
1: which he was.
0: Mm-hmm. which he was it says uh, verse 9 for all our days are passed away in your wrath we spend our years as a tale that is told uh, where we're as a sigh, basically just all of our years are just a simple story, simple story. How many times have we realized that the stories, the real story goes on? The story of creation and God goes on through the entire Bible. We, we go through everything about Jesus, Jesus being foretold, everybody's lives pointing to Jesus. He's born. He dies for our sins. We watch him being spread around the world we watch the way that we're still part of that same story of sharing the gospel of Christ as we get ready to move toward the climax of him ruling all of creation, which is the climax of the story that he started back at the beginning. It's kind of amazing when you think about it. There was a line in the line, uh, in, uh, in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings series where Frodo and, and Sam are... they're they're despairing and they start telling each other the stories of the ring and, and all of a sudden they realize it's all been the same story from the time the ring was created and we're a part of that story as we're getting ready to destroy the ring because all these generations is the same story and we're just part of the same story. We all are part of the same story of God from his creation of man to the end when we're going to worship him. It's all part of that same story and each of us have a part of his story and that's what I love about the word history when you read it that way it's all his story it's all about God from beginning to end all good stories have to follow God's plan that there has to be the the good person who has to struggle maybe even suffer to the point of death or near death and then has victory at the end and good always has to win If you've ever read a story where some author, or watched a movie, where some author decided they were going to violate the good story principles and somehow bad wins, you walk away from that movie knowing that something's not right or from that book and saying, this book just wasn't good. Why? Because instinctively we know good wins. They don't, the the lost world doesn't want that to be true, but instinctively we know good always has to win in the end for it to be a good story. And, there, and the other thing that always has to be in, in, a, in a good story is the good guy always has to struggle somewhere, somehow. If the good guy always wins all the way through the entire story, we're left with, what kind of story was that? The, where was the conflict? Where was the, where was the troubles that we know were part of life? And that, I haven't seen too many movies, but I've seen one or two where good, the good guy always seemed to get everything went their way. And it's like Okay, what, what was the point of this movie? I wasted, or book, what was the point of this book or movie? I wasted time with it because there was no conflict. There was nothing for somebody to overcome. Aren't every one of our lives are that? God puts us in a place where we have to struggle, and the struggle is with him, and then we win. Or God will win in the long run one way or the other. Verse 10 says, "The days of our years are seventy, and if by reason of strength they get, they are for 80 years. Yet is there strength and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we and we fly away. God, where most of us will live to be 70, and if by chance we stay strong and and healthy, and you know, by good works and exercise, we live to be 80. He's saying, it's nothing. You're still, you're still going to end." And it's still going to seem like a short time to God. Yeah. And this is, this is him saying, again, the brevity of life, how short life is. And now all of us, the older we get, the more we realize how short life is. And then as we get older, we start realizing how close to the end we are. No matter, even though we don't know exactly how old we are going to be when we pass away, we still know... After a certain point, you know, when you're young, you expect to live, you expect to live, you know, forever, you know, and and if you die if you die young, it's it's considered a tragedy, but once you cross probably the 50, 60 year mark, it's like, okay, I'm getting I'm getting I'm getting closer, I'm getting closer to that point, and and that shortness and brevity of life starts to really sink in. It's not like I have forever anymore. Well, I remember that there was only two birthdays that ever meant anything to me. Being somebody that didn't drink, 21 meant nothing to me. I cared about 16 because I could finally get my license on, and I could get behind the wheel and drive a car. And when I was 18, it could vote. Those were the only two birthdays. Beyond that, it's like, okay, just another year has gone by, another year has gone by. But I am now starting to get into that age where it says, wow, I've, lived, I've lived probably more than <laughs> half of my life. Okay, you get to that place where you say, I've, I've probably gone past half, The halfway mark. Okay, God, I'm ready to come home. I'm, I'm, you know, and this for us as Christians is not a bad thing because we look at it and say, "All right, God, when do I get to go home? When do I get to go home? When do I get to go home?" The lost world gets terrified at this age because it's they have nothing to look forward to. They they get scared as they get older. For us as Christians, it's like, "All right, God, one day closer to going home." one day closer. I don't know. I don't know how many more days I've got, but I'm one day closer to going home. And and we get that excitement, and there shouldn't be that fear of death for us as Christians because that just means we get to go home. We get to stand before the Father, and look in the face of Jesus. And here here's Moses saying, you know, even if, if by chance you live to be older, it's still just a short time. It's just it's ready to fly away. Verse 11. Who knows the power of your anger? Even according to your fear, so is your wrath. And this is, again, Moses coming to this idea of God's anger. And he'd seen God's anger so many times, and we've been going through the book, the first five books of the Bible, and we've seen God's anger over and over again. And I am so glad that for us in this age, when we're under the age of grace, that God's wrath has really been under wraps for almost 2,000 years now. and It's an amazing thing because we don't really fully understand God's anger the way the Jews did. They were always under, the, under his thumb and under severe judgment. So severe that many times they were sent into captivity during the judges' days and then they would repent and come back and God would deliver them. Then Israel, the northern kingdom, got so evil that God said, fine, I'm going to send you into captivity. And they went into captivity with the Assyrians. And then Judah followed behind them because of their disobedience and evil. And God put them under captivity for hundreds of years. And since Jesus came, we get to live under grace. But it was longer than 400 years that God let, the, let them stay in captivity, you know, total captivity for God's wrath. And here Moses is saying, Moses understood God's wrath. He also understood God's grace. Seventy years, 70 years in Babylon, but there was hundreds of years overall of God, Because you've also got the Roman times. And you've got thousands of years between 70 A.D. and the time they went back in 1948. That answers your questions of where I'm getting hundreds of years. Verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Teach us, declare, make known to us to number, to count our days, so that we will apply wisdom. It would be good if we did. It would be very good if we do. And the older we get, the more we do this. But this verse is just that statement. When we're young and think we're going to live forever, we aren't, aren't numbering our days and we, and we do foolish things. Uh, the world calls it, you're sowing your oats you're doing you're getting the bad out of your system supposedly which never is true but but they like to think of it you know you're young you're young you're just trying to find your way in life you know and God says count your days count your days realize that even at that age they need to be understanding you only have maybe 50 to 60 years left if you're really really good maybe 100 to get to 120 if we keep in mind That our days are numbered. How will that change the way we behave? When I realize I have just a certain number of days to serve God and apply that wisdom that He's asking me to do, instead of thinking, oh, I've got, you know, I'm 20, I've got forever to make a decision for God, to start living for God, I've got a long time, and you die the next day. How many times have you witnessed to somebody and somebody says, well, Now, when I get old, I'll make that decision for God. You know, i got plenty of time. And and my question always back to them is, who told you you have plenty of time? Who told you that you're even going to be alive tomorrow morning? But we want to be able to number our days and know that they're short. Even if it's 80 years down the road, we still have a short time left. And we don't even know for sure that we have 24 hours. Granted, most of us have 24 hours in us because God is going to give us that time. But none of us can be guaranteed of that, and I share that all the time. When we leave here today, my wife and Annie and I, to go back home, we're expecting to make it back to Kingman. And the odds are that we will make it back to Kingman. But no guarantee that we'll make it back to Kingman. But that is the point that we're making. Time is short. We need to... We need to redeem the hours that we're in and use them wisely for God because we don't know that we even have another second or minute. We need to just say every moment needs to be given to God and used for God. And this is why I keep sharing with people, there's nothing really wrong with being, just sitting down and watching a movie or watching TV or, or just reading a book. But every moment that you do that is moments that you're taking away from serving God. And God doesn't expect us to work for him 24-7, 365 days a year. But he does say, where is our heart? Where is our treasure? I Hi. challenged the men yesterday. I heard, I've heard a number of pastors say this. Keep a log of what you do for a couple of days. Each hour, just write down what you did. As I was saying, you know, keep a log of what you've been doing each hour for, for a few days to a week. And then look it over. And find out who your God really is. How are you spending time with God? Or are you spending time somewhere else? You might just find out that your God is that television set that you didn't think you were sitting in front of as you find out that you spent five, six hours a day. You know, food, food can be your God. Who knows what it is, but look at look at where you spend your time. The other thing that they'll, they'll challenge you is look at your checkbook. Where do you spend your money? You know, how much of your money goes to God? Some people lots of their money goes to God. Some people haven't haven't had any money go to God for a long time. You know, so but you just look at it and say, where is it? Verse 13, return, O Lord, how long and let it let it repent you concerning your servants. So Moses is saying, God, just forgive your people. Forgive them. Turn away, turn away from them. Verse fourteen, oh satisfy us early with your mercies that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. I love this verse. Now, I feel so fortunate that I grew up in a in a home that was that followed Christ. I was in a home where the word was lifted up and prayer was lifted up. We went to church, we learned to serve God, we learned to go door knocking and, and street evangelism. we went out with my dad to do these things and Early on, I learned what God wanted from us. And I have only in recent years realized how great a blessing that was. As I've met people who have not had that kind of blessing, that are still trying to struggle to learn to do things that, were, that I took for granted because of the way that I was raised. That For my kids, that they took it for granted because of the way they were raised and between us as we taught them to honor God and to fear God. And to get into the word and to share Christ. I've learned that not everybody's done that. And the more I see that, the more I have praised God for that opportunity. And being able to do this. And this is what he's saying. Satisfy us early with your mercy. Early with your mercy so that we can be glad and rejoice. And I love the word rejoice here. We've talked about this before. It's a loud ringing shout of joy. It's that shout that can be heard above everything else because you're so happy. And as I've described, it's for anybody who's ever been anywhere near a stadium during a big game, it's that that roar that all of a sudden pops up. You may not know what happened, but you go, something happened that the the home team liked, because listen to that yell as you're hearing it five miles from the stadium and go, wow, something big just happened in the stadium. Because, and that's what God's describing, our joy and our excitement. It is so bizarre to watch Christians, you know, sometimes, worshiping God. No smile on their face. Praise God, I know all blessings. Oh, don't let me smile. Somebody might think I'm happy. <laughs> But, you know, it's really unfortunate that that is the way a lot of Christians come and approach God. And God is saying, I want you happy. I want you rejoicing. I want the world to know how excited you are. You know, It would be wonderful if when we're singing our hymns and, and choruses in the morning, they're hearing us all the way at Grasshopper Junction. Now, there's not enough of us to be heard that far. But do you understand what I'm saying? It would be wonderful for people outside the doors to wonder, what's going on with those crazy people in there? They sound happy and excited. All right, verse 15. Make us glad according to the days wherein you have afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Here's Moses saying, you know, God, make us glad. Make us glad even though all these bad things are happening. Make us glad. Does that sound a little bit like Paul when he says, I've learned to be content with much or little? Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail after having been scourged in the middle of the night singing praises and hymns to God. Can you imagine that? Their backs laid open, laid open from the whip, and they're in the they're in the dungeon in extreme pain singing worship songs in the middle of the night. Waking up all the other prisoners. <laughs> with their singing because it, who knows whether they were good singers or not but they were praising God why were they praising God? because he counted them worthy of suffering for them and oh, they just yeah. wanted to lift up God oh. even when things seem to be going wrong for us God is in control and we need to be worshipping him and praising him because number one it could have been worse you know, kind of a hard way to look at it but anything could always be worse than yeah. it is if God was to take his hand off you just a little more than he did, who knows where you would have been. You know, instead of just being sick this week with a slight cold, you might have been in the hospital. You, you might have been in a coma. Who knows what it is. So God is saying, even though we're being afflicted, rejoice. Rejoice. And if we're totally hiding in him, we're not even noticing what's going on around us anyway. Because he is our he, the wind and storms are beating on him. And then verse 16, let your work appear unto your servants and your glory to your children. I love this. How many times do we go forward and do something with God, and then he shows us all the blessings of having been obedient to him. What's worse is if you go disobedient with him, and now he shows you what you could have had. Mm-hmm. Now, this is what you should have had, but you chose. You chose this path. When we stand before Christ at the beam of seat of judgment and he looks for the good things to reward us for, as he burns away all the bad and to look for that, I think part of what he's also going to show us is, here's what you get to walk out with. This is what I had for you. This is what I had over here. This great big pile of rewards. No matter how much you're walking out with, there's a great big pile of rewards that we didn't go the right path for. That's why we come out of the bema seat in tears, because we look and say, oh, I've got this pen. Look at that pile of stuff he had for me over there. If only I had done the things he wanted to do. And we walk out. We walk out rewarded. We walk out <laughs> with, with our reward. But we also walk out realizing there was so much more, so much more that he had not intended to give us. <laughs> Those of us who are Christians learn that. Yes. Yeah. Many, many of the unchristians just get more and more bitter because they don't have any joy and any hope. Mm-hmm. So I would say Christians tend to get less judgmental and more accepting because they realize how, how fleeting everything is. So Every little thing that you got is you've lost so much of it anyway, and you just realize how in, imperfect the physical is. They so start dwelling right on the. Life. They have exactly. nothing left to lo- to live for because they don't have they don't have the 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 promise of heaven. They have nothing to live for because what are you going to do? You're ninety. You're, you're eighty, ninety years old. You're going to start another business and, and go out and make another fortune to lose again. Uh, and, and everything is starting to fall apart. You start realizing all the stuff you've lost. You have gone through your fingers. And you go, wow, so much has come and gone. And, it's, it, and even when you get it, you find out it has no value. And this is the thing that people find as Christians, when we become Christians and we start following God, we've got God, we've got a future. But remember before you got, knew God and, and you weren't satisfied with God, everything you reached out for and tried to grab hold of, you know, it was either very elusive and you never got it, or even if you did get it, it didn't satisfy we have so many movie stars and and singers that think that well if i just get to be the the headliner or the i get to make this movie where i'm the i'm the star i'm going to be happy and they get there and they find out they're just as depressed as they ever were and they and they get deeper into the drugs deeper in the alcohol deeper into the depression and go well maybe the next big headliner you know the next album will be the one and after a while they just realize no none of this is what is going to satisfy. Why? Because only God can satisfy that that place. And as you get older and you haven't found that satisfaction, you get to a place of nothing's going to ever satisfy. And they're right. Nothing will satisfy outside of God. And they have to be willing to humble themselves and turn to God. And this is one of the things that kind of bothers me as we look at is a, a nation and a world that's getting more and more into to drugs and and alcohol, to... To mesmerize themselves and they're making they're wanting to make all these drugs legal why so that people can try to get into this escape and, and pull away from reality and the sad thing about it is the problems are still there when you get come down off of the off of the off of that hiding from them the problems are still there and they're usually intensified because there's something else that got added you know if nothing else you wasted your money on getting this. You know, at the very least you lost your money, yeah. and oftentimes you lost more than that, because sometimes you do things that you regret that you've done, sometimes you waste time because you're so out in, out in the field that you just lost a day and never knew it, or hours. And all the things that are out there, at the very least you've lost money, and you're usually money many times money is the issue that tried, drove you to it in the first place. But this whole idea, our time is short. It needs to be lived with God. The last thing we wanna do is be hiding from reality for a period of time, chasing whatever. Chasing whatever. And whatever sin that is that you're chasing after and losing time in reality, And time is short. And we waste so much of it trying to do things that God's not wanting to do. We're gonna read our last verse in this Psalm. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us Yea, the work of our hands establish you it. Let the beauty of the Lord rest upon us. The best possible place to ever be is in God's presence, spending time with God. I just can't think of anything I'd rather do than to be in his word, to sing praises to him, to be with God's people, and just have God be present. I've said a couple of times, there have been a few times when I've been in worship time and in the very presence of God and it's like, wow, this is just a little taste of what heaven's going to be like. I don't know if you've ever experienced, I hope you have, where, where you're just so into God. There's nobody else there but you and God and, and your song is to God, your, your, your all of your attention is on God. You're probably caterwauling at the top of your lungs and and driving everybody else crazy, but it's just you and God. It's just you and God, and you're enjoying God. And that is just the smallest taste of what it's going to be like when you're in, in God's presence, in heaven, in his presence. His beauty rests upon you. And when he is doing the work through you, the work is established good things get done and you get the reward in heaven and you hide your treasure in heaven. This is so important. When we are worshiping, whether it's in singing or in study or our own personal study in, in singing and worshiping Him, concentrate on God. Make a just you and God and let nobody else, nobody else around you matters. It doesn't even matter what the music is or what the songs are. I have had great worship experiences singing choruses that not all the older people like, and I've had wonderful times singing in the hymns, and having the experience that it's just me and God for a period of time. It doesn't really matter because it's my attitude as I come before Him, and I, just, I come into His presence and, I, and He just wraps me up in His arms and says, we're just going to spend some time together. Mm-hmm. He wraps us up, and you realize that that's the relationship God wants with you. As you come before him, he's that good parent that just is so happy to see you that they wrap their arms around you, and they give you that big hug and say, I am so glad you're back home and that you have been behaving. And God says, wraps his arms around us and say, we're just going to enjoy being together. This is how important this relationship is. Time is short. We need to stay focused on God. And you know what? Spend as much time as we can with them. I picture Elijah and Enoch who got to be raptured, basically, to God. They, they walked with God so much. How close did they get to God and spend so much time with God that God finally just said, well, you're almost here anyway, so why don't you just come on up? Why don't you just come on up? You're spending so much time with me anyway. Let's, let's just make it permanent. Yeah, thank you think you go or did God take her? I mean, I know He took 'em, but did He just have other hands taken up, or did they just fly huh? up? We don't know anything about Enoch other than he walked with God and was not. Elijah. We have the testimony of Elisha, who saw him swept up in the in the chariot of fire and taken out of his presence. Uh, so, but we do have this thing. All of us are living in an age where we might not have to die for God. We might just be taken in the rapture and just be grabbed, snatched from this existence into the spiritual. How that works, who knows? God may just say, okay, there goes your physical body and now the spirit, walk in the spirit world, and here we are. We could be like Jesus or Elijah and be lifted up and everybody's watching us. Where are you all going? It could be an instantaneous in the twinkling of an eye. We don't fully know anything about it other than there's going to be a day when God's going to take his church from this world And as Paul said, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those of us who are alive will follow. And we get to celebrate with God for seven years while this world goes through miserable, miserable times. All of his purpose is to bring them to God, but it's not going to be easy. It is not going to be easy. We know people are going to get saved. We know they're going to come to God. We've got 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are going to be going around the world preaching God. We've got the two witnesses at the, at the temple gate sharing the gospel. We've got an angel running around the heavens preaching the gospel to the world. You want to tell? You want to say that the church was not necessary? God says at the end times an angel's going to be preaching the gospel. You could have done that from the beginning. You could have done that from the very beginning and said, "Well, as soon as you get saved, you go to heaven and have the angel preach to everybody." But he uses us. He gives us the privilege of sharing the gospel for him. But. We want to be looking forward to that time. There's that time coming where we want that we. Walking with God is not going to be the abnormal thing or the special thing. It is going to be the thing. It'll be our entire existence. That's one of the things I love about the song. I can only imagine. Mm -hmm. The only problem is the verses are kind of strange. We will fall at His feet. We're not going to stand. We're not going to dance. We're not going to talk. We will fall at His feet. It's a beautiful song. It's a good song. But. Everybody who sees God in the scriptures falls on their, on their face. Mm-hmm. So there's no question of what we're going to do, especially the first time we see him in heaven. Now, maybe after we've been there for a couple couple billion years, we might not fall <laughs> on our face, uh, face at the sight of him, but uh, for with those first few times we see him, we're going to just fall and worship, especially when we see Jesus at first, the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth, and we see the the marks that he took for us to get us there. And we're going to look at him and we're just going to fall on our face because of how much love he had for us. And we look at it and say, oh, no, what happened? And we just fall. And we really see the the total price he paid for us, the beating he took with the cat of nine tails, the, the cross that he went. The fact that he became sin when we start to really understand the awfulness of sin. Because no matter what, again, that's one of those things, no matter how bad we think sin is on this world, we don't know sin the way God sees it. And if we think about it, the more we grow to be like him, the more we hate sin. Hopefully. I know that it's happening in my case, and I've shared with you. I can't watch all the TV shows I used to watch because I look at them and I'm saying, this one promotes sin. This one promoted sin. And I'm talking about some of the good shows that are supposedly good shows. And I look at, look at how much sin was promoted in this show and that show. And I'm getting that hatred towards sin. I'm getting that hatred toward how bad sin is. And you know what? Even as far as I've advanced in 40 years, I'm nowhere compared to what God is when he looks at sin and is sickened by it. And it's a good thing he doesn't see it because it's under the blood of Christ. Jesus paid for it all. But we need to get to that point where we see sin and say, sin is ugly. There's nothing good about sin. When comedians in these shows make fun of of things that God calls holy and and makes fun and and lifts up sin, there's nothing good about those things. Because God says it is bad. I think you are sick. And we want to be so, and I've shared with you, when I hear comedians make fun of, of, of husbands and wives and marriage and family, I do not find anything. They may be clean as far as their language, but they're making fun of something that God says is so holy that I don't like making fun of. Now, make fun of us as being Christians. There's plenty of things to make fun of us as Christians about. And we're a strange breed of people. You know, we make all kinds of crazy things. It's, it's, it's fun to make fun of Christians. Uh, College Park had a poster, a little poster on their board one time, and this police officer is writing a ticket. He says, uh, "Pastor, I'm writing you a, a, a long-winded speeding uh, ticket. You said a 45-minute sermon in a 35-minute zone." <laughs> uh, but it was a cute joke, but those are the kind of things that are, they're kind of funny. You know, yeah. they're, they're not, they're not you know, tearing things down or hurtful. Uh, so, Ms. pray. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask that you go with us as we go out today and as we go about our business this week, help us to learn to share you more and more and to care for you more and more. And we just thank you in Jesus' name, amen.